Welcome to the Daily Bolster. Each day we welcome transformational executives to share their real-world experiences and practical advice about scaling yourself, your team, and your business. Welcome to the Daily Bolster. I'm Matt Blumberg, co-founder and CEO of Bolster. And I am here today uh, with uh, Jerry Newman and Liz Zalman. Uh, they are respectively a venture investor and a multi-time founder, and they are authors of the brand new book, which is called Founder versus Investor. Uh, I really enjoyed reading the book. Uh, it presents lots of topics with sort of a back and forth in the book. And um, I think we'll we'll do some of that today here. So um, Liz and Jerry, welcome. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. All right. Um, I think that the first question I have is, um, you, know, you talked a lot in the book about trust. And I probably have a couple questions about trust up front. But the, the one I want to start with is, um, if you work backwards from like the end of uh, a company, and let's call it the successful end of a company, uh, right? Some sort of liquidity event. Um, you know, the the best founder and investor relationships are ones um, that uh, that have a tremendous amount of trust that have been built up over a lot of time. The challenge, of course, is at the beginning of a founder investor relationship. It's the beginning of a relationship, right? Unless the two have worked together on multiple companies before. Um, and you know, most business relationships, most relationships are are based on trust. How have you? both found the process of creating that trust essentially overnight. You know, most deal processes take a month or two, um, you know, maybe a few months. It, and if you think about it in the scheme of, of a 10-year relationship or a 20-year relationship, how do, you, how do you do your level best to build that trust so quickly, so early on? Why don't we start with Liz? Um, so I'll actually tell you one that was essentially overnight. So, um, for, at my last company for my series B, it was led by tiger. And as you, and we raised in the, the froth of 2021. And so, as you know, things were moving incredibly quickly. And I think it was 23 hours from first contact with tiger to close. Yeah, it was incredible. And, and we, we signed the term sheet and I remember saying to John Curtius, I was like, I can't close this deal unless I meet you in person. So the way that I create that trust is in person, I need to, quote unquote, feel somebody. I need yep. to see what they're like. I need to watch the body language. It, it completes it um, for me. So I'm a big, big, big in-person um, in person, person as the basis for that trust. I, I'm with you on that 100%. Um, and yet 23 hours. Like how much, and, and how much trust can so, so, But yeah, I met Heath Phillip to New York, to his credit, maybe I think within a week or two. Um, um, so I had no intention of backing out at that point because it's crappy to sign a term sheet and then back out if you don't like somebody in person, but perfectly lovely. But, but he made the effort and that to me meant, meant the world, especially in that climate. And, and Jerry, what about your perspective? Like, how do you, how, what, what signals do you look for, uh, in founders that, that they are trusting or how do you figure out if you trust them or yeah, how do you make sure they trust you? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I think there's the, the, before you invest part and, yeah, I think part of the reason investors try to make that part longer than it has to be, perhaps, is to get to know the person a bit better, right? It's uh, I know founders are always complaining that it takes forever to get somebody just to, you know, put an offer on the table, but you, know, you want to get to know somebody. And I, and I think 
making sure if somebody is trustworthy um, is important and also making sure that they're trusting, right? That they can trust you or have the ability to trust you. Um, people who are overly negative about the whole venture process, you know, it's hard to believe they're going to trust you later on when things get, you know, more difficult. So there's that part, which I think is very human, right? That's why we want to sit in front of each other. Um, and then there's the part afterwards where you actually have to be the kind of person that they can trust, right? You have to, you have to tell them what you're going to do and then do those things. Um, not surprise them with doing things that you didn't say you were going to do or that they didn't think you were going to do. Uh, make sure you stick to your word. I mean, there's a story in the book about um, me and Liz, actually, when I was investing in her first company. And she was talking about, well, her lawyer called me and like, had all these terms that we hadn't agreed to. And I got all pissed off because that's not the kind of trusting relationship I wanted. So I, I called her up on the phone and she didn't answer. And so I called the lawyer and yelled at him for a while. And then um, the lawyer must have called her because she called me back immediately. And she's whispering to me like, you know, look, don't worry. I do what I say I'm going to do. The lawyer was just, you know, out, you know, making things up, trying to help. But we're getting, you're going to get the terms that we agreed to. And, you know, I said, well, why are you whispering? She's, well, I'm at a shiva. So it was, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think you, you know, it's both things. You have to, it has to be somebody you can trust or think you can trust. And then you have to make sure as you go forward that, that you're building that relationship. And, and um, uh, I, I mean, I guess this is most of these things are, are a complete and equal two-way street. Um, I think, uh, um, how do you, how do you, so each of you gave an example of how the of how the other one um, demonstrated trust, um, if not you two specifically, right? Liz, you gave an example of an investor, you know, gaining your trust. How do you think about signaling on behalf of you, right? How do you how do you demonstrate that you are trustworthy in this case to the other side? So for for me, I am, and I think. I think that we touch on this in the book. I am open, honestly, to a fault. Um, so if I'm messing up, I'm going to tell you I'm messing up. Uh, I can't even account the number of times I've called Jerry <laughs> crying in the middle of the night or, or not during the day. Um, so if I'm having a problem or we need to talk about something, you're going to know right right away. And so you can, I, I'm, I'm an open book. And that has been both very helpful in cultivating relationships with with investors or employees or whomever it is, but also it can be harmful because that can be that can be taken taken advantage of and, and has been. But I don't know that I want to operate any other way because that's how I want people to operate with me. Right. I mean, certainly the best way to demonstrate trust is to be you. So, yeah. um, yes. Jerry, how do you think about that when you're when you're talking to founders, particularly founders maybe who've never gone through a financing before or they're super young? Like, how do you how do you how do you signal trust? I, you know, I think I try to be present in the world so they can always go back and check me out, right? So I think the, the reason a lot of venture investors are on Twitter or they're out, you know, broadcasting their presence in, in you know, talking at conferences is not just because they want people to come to them when they need money, but also because that kind of ambient presence allows people to start to understand how you are, right? What kind of person you are. So you can look at some, you know, investors' Twitter and be like, all right, this guy's a jerk or or not, right? So I think it's, you have to be who you are. It's, you know, there's not much separation in my life between my work and my, the rest of my life. Um, as I think mo for most people these days, um, and, and people can just look at what I say over the years and, and see who I am. I also say, look, here's a list of who I invested in call any of them. 
some of these people hate me, you know, but you, you know, you can talk to them and see what they say. That's actually, I, I, I was I, doing the right thing or not. I think that's great. I, you know, the, the first um, institutional investor that I had at, at Return Path was Fred Wilson. And, um, and he did that. He gave me a list of every CEO he had worked with and phone numbers. And he said, call any single one of them, even the ones I fired. Yep. Um, so, uh, so I like that. All right. So I want to, I want to um, keep on the theme of trust for a second, but ask a very different question, um, which is something you, that I think both of you brought up in the book, which is um, uh, the sort of the, the tension between trust and bias. Um, so much easy, much easier to trust people, you know, right? People with whom you have a track record, with whom you've worked in the past. I've certainly found this, right? Bolster has eight co-founders. We all worked together at the prior company and all of our cap table worked with us at our prior company. Um, and, you know, so there's sort of, you know, instant trust. Um, but, um, you know, one of the challenges I think that all of us face um, around bias is, um, is around bringing new people into the inner circle and bringing people in who um, have different experience sets, Maybe they look different than we do, et cetera. So how, how do you think about, um, you know, sort of that, the tension between trust and, and bias, whether it's about picking an executive team, um, picking a founder, picking an investor, picking uh, new partners at, at your fund? You want to go first, Liz, or you want me to go? No, I'm going to go second on this one. All right. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's hard. You know, I, I say so in the book and I, I, um, I don't want it to be hard, but it, it's hard. I, um, Part of it is getting to know people over a longer period of time. But but you know the problem is with people who are more like me, who might have no people that I know or have worked for people that I know, I, I can call them and say, you know, what do you think of this person? And I do this with everybody I invest in. I'm like, all right, who do I know that knows this person that they worked for in the past? Um, so it's a lot easier to get somebody to talk about that person if they're part of the same, you know, whatever. Um, it, it's a hard thing. And I, and I think it's sort of incumbent on the investors to take the risk on people who you might not be able to vet as well because it's the right thing to do. And because it probably bolsters your returns. I mean, people keep saying this, right? Um, so, but, but it is a little bit more of a risk. I, I think so. I think there's trust. Trust for me is a, is it's an interesting word, Matt. I think that there are, if I were in your situation, for example, and I were starting a company right now with people that I that I worked with, and it's the same people on my cap table, I wonder if I would use the word trust or if I would use the word familiarity. Because I have worked with them for so long and have operated next to them for so long, I know exactly what to expect. I know exactly how they're going to behave. I know when it's going to be frothy waves and when it's going to be peaceful, calm waters. And, and they know the same of me, right? They know the situations in which I'm going to get up in front of the company and probably cry because of good news or bad news. And they know when I'm going to be happy and peppy. Um, and so for me, it's choosing to operate within the, the known as opposed to the, as opposed to the unknown that's hard. Um, I guess with respect to investors, I mean, the investors with whom I've worked with on both my first company and second company are only the early stage Pre-seed investor, I think it's Jerry. It's another one named Jeffrey Silverman. I, I think that's it. That was on both cap tables. Um, um, and it's also unfortunately easier to, I think, to Jerry's point, to network uh, that way within our circle. But but I will say, touching on the point of diligence, I think that most founders today, 
do a really poor job of diligencing who they're getting into business with. The number who call me and they're like, well, I've got this term sheet, I got to sign. I'm like, dude, how many people have you spoken with who have worked with these people? Like push pause and pick up the phone and, and dial. And I don't know why it is that this current cohort of folks is, is fearful of doing that or doesn't think that they have the power to or doesn't want to. Uh, I don't know, but it is to their detriment that they don't figure out who they're hiring, who they're, who they're signing that, that 10-year marriage certificate with. Yeah, I think that's a good point. That matches um, a, a lot of the conversations I've had with with first time and early stage um, early stage founders at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to remember that the networks we build over time, and especially, you know, I've been in this business for a while now. They're not where I went to school or where I grew up or the people I hang out with in my spare time. My networks are people that I've worked with in the industries I've worked in. Right. So if you've ever worked in ad tech, I know somebody who knows you. Right. <laughs> And it's, so it's there's a, the bias can be weird, but it is, you know, if you want to get into somebody's inner circle, I think that's the way to do it is to go work in the industry that they're, you know, interested in. And that's the kind of thing you look for anyway, as an investor, somebody who has a little bit of experience in your industry. Right. Okay. I'm just agreeing uh, on everything you, today. I, okay. Everything well, we'll, 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 <laughs> we'll see what we can do about that. Uh, all right. My next topic is I want to dig into the topic of boards and board meetings. Uh, and you know, I've written a lot about boards. We talk a lot about boards and and um, uh, and building boards and managing effective boards uh, on on the Daily Bolster and at Bolster in general. And I was I was blown away by how dim a view, quite frankly, both of you have of boards and board meetings. Liz, a dimmer view than Jerry, but Jerry wasn't what you weren't like, you know, go go go. Um, so. First of all, let me just make sure I get that I got that right. Like that was the vibe I got from the book. Um, as I write, it just seems like both of you kind of hate boards. You don't see a lot of value in them. I don't think that's true for me. I think there's a lot of value. I mean, I insist that companies I invest in have a board when I have the power to insist. And I, because I think boards are necessary, I just think that people don't understand what a board is for, right? So a lot of founders think the board is there to come give them their you know, monthly advice on how to run the company. And that's not what the board is for, right? The board is for the investors to make sure their investment is doing well and that they know how it's doing. And then also to understand whether or not this is the right team to run the company. And I, I think founders need to understand that. There may also be an element of them giving some help, but you have to be careful about that because that's not what the board meeting is for. That's Investors do that. And I just think that founders should get that help outside of a board meeting, not in a board meeting. That's an interesting view, and that 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 doesn't actually match the experience I've had in my career, mm -hmm. uh, where I think you can accomplish both in a board meeting. Um, but but let me ask you again, Jerry, as um, you know, as someone who has sat on dozens of boards, hundreds of boards, right? Which is one of the things that separates the founder and the investor, right? That the founder's on their board, maybe they're on an outside board, maybe in their career they've been on a couple, um, and investors have been on many. Um, what do you do to help mentor a founder or teach a founder about how to get the most out of a board uh, or how to lead a board effectively? Like, do you encourage strong independent directors? Do you discourage them? Uh, how, do, how do you, what, what role do you play in functioning of a board? So uh, for the past 15 years, I've been usually one of the very first investors in a company. That's, that's just what I've decided to do. So I'm often, when I'm on a board, 
the first person on the board and sometimes the only person on the board beside the founder for the first you know, year of the company's life. And then they bring on series, you know, later stage investors uh, who come onto the board. And at some point, you know, probably after two years, I'll leave the board because they've got other people on the board who can do the job and I don't have to do it anymore. The thing that I try to, and in that first year, I try to get the founder to follow a certain type of board meeting template, right? Where every month you come in and, and tell them the same things, right? Not not the same things, but the same types of things, right? Where these are the metrics you're going to focus on because this is the stage of the company, et cetera. So, so that you can go in there and everybody knows what's going to happen, right? They're, you have a short meeting, maybe an hour, once a month. They know what's going to be in there. Um, and then if you have problems that you want help with, there's a certain way to approach it, right? It's I think it's similar to if, if you have a boss that you work in a big company, you have a boss, you don't walk into your boss's office in your Friday meeting and with these open-ended problems and expect them to sit there and solve them with you, right? This is your job to solve these problems. So you walk in, you say, here's my problem. Here's what I'm thinking of doing. What do you think of that, right? It's, it's a different way of doing it. I think, you know, I have been on not hundreds, but dozens of boards. And the times when there's been trouble, founders have come in and said, I don't know what to do. And then the board starts to think, well, okay, but maybe somebody else does. Um, all right. So Liz, over to you. Um, the quote that I wrote down from the book was oh, no. boards suck and nothing you do <laughs> matters. Um, so like, why are you so down on them? Like, have you ever had a good one or been, been an independent director on a really good one? Um, I mean, I get they're sort of, you know, even the best boards have their, have their moments, but, um, nothing you do matters. I don't think that anything you do matters. No, I stand by those words. And, and it is entirely possible, Matt, to that, to, 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 for the rest of the industry listening, that my experience is a crazy outlier and most have an experience somewhere closer to the middle. Um, but having spoken to a lot of founders, I don't, I don't know that that's the case. And, and I think for two reasons. So there are, my experience with board meetings, just, they're just absolutely useless. I either have them with an early stage seed investor and we're walking around and we're just shooting the shit and there's no real board meeting, or there's, there's a whole bunch of, of loud voices in the room and we're talking about why things aren't better, even when they're going great. Why aren't they better? Why aren't they better? They could be better. You can be better. Everything can be better. Um, well, yeah. But useless for whom, right? That's the question. Useless for me. So that, so let me, so let me press on that for a second. Um, and, and you, you wrote something else uh, that I noted too, which is something to the effect that a board book is a, has to be a work of art that caters to all the egos in the room. Um, and, you know, I guess the question, and, and maybe this is a question for both of you is, um, you know, do you, do you feel like a, um, like a founder or CEO can shape the conversation of a board meeting, uh, you know, can effectively come into a board meeting, both with the materials and with meeting facilitation skills to say, here is what I need to get out of this meeting Absolutely. and run the conversation around it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's their job, right? It is their job and their job alone to shape that meeting. Matt, if, if I'm sitting from the outside 
for a second. So how would I, as a non-operating founder right now, how would I shape a board meeting and how have I shaped a board meeting? The first thing I do is I sit with my co-founders or my co-founder and I look at how the business is doing, which is something we're doing anyways. And I was, and I'm like, we're going to pull out the things that we want to talk about. What did we talk about last meeting? What do we need to talk about this meeting? How does the future look? Where do we need to focus? Okay. I'm then, tracking. I'm tracking with you okay. so far. Then yeah. I pick up the phone and I call every single board member and board observer and Joe Schmo, who's going to be sitting in the meeting. And I walk through the meeting with them and I say, what would you like to hear? What are you concerned about? What would you like me to focus on? Oh, that's so interesting. Thank you so much for sharing that. And then we hang up the phone, get all these opinions. Then we create the deck to make sure that it addresses all of these points. We walk in and we talk about them in the way Jerry presented, and then meetings always blow up. Because, and then everybody goes around the table and shares their opinion again. So there's nothing unknown about how this meeting's gonna go. What I struggle with is the uselessness and the utility of it. The utility of it for me at this point is sign off on my option pool grants, sign off on my comp adjustments, do we need to approve a 409A valuation? Thank you very much. The rest is just pomp and circumstance. And, and I'll pause for a second. Is there anything that I just described in my preparation for the meeting that you might change or you do differently? I think I've checked the major boxes. But let me ask, would, do you think FTX should have had a stronger board? I mean, you know, there, there are times where the board actually does keep the company on the straight and narrow, which is part of their job. Right. So, Jerry, it's certainly true that when you look at all the examples of, of companies that have blown up, that, you know, the board wasn't wasn't doing their job from an accountability perspective. Um, what founders um, don't founders don't crave the accountability of the board that that is part of the dynamic and part of the relationship. Um, I, I've always found that I get value out of. Um, I get value out of the conversation that the board has around things that I am kind of rolling around in my head, right? That the team's not, maybe we're not quite sure about what to do. That doesn't mean, Jerry, to your point that we show up and say, what do we do? Um, but it, you know, it means you prepare some thoughtful materials that say, hey, here's something that's bugging us right now. We're trying to figure out, you know, is it X or is it Y? Um, you know, should we do A or should we do B? Um, and I've always gotten a lot of value out of that interaction and conversation. Now, I, I don't typically do, Liz, what you said, which is call each board member before the meeting and, and say, what, you know, what do you want us to cover and put that in the book? Um, uh, but I, I have always gotten a lot of value out of the interaction between board members over topics. I think the value that I've gotten has been one-on-one. -on -one, and when I'm asking them about the very specific thing um, that, that I believe they're good at. Some VCs are really good at helping with politics. Some are good with introductions to customers, whatever that that thing is. But that happens on a phone call and not in in this in this group setting. I, I do think though that the the yes, I'll pause there. Well, I want to come back to uh, to something you said at the beginning when we were talking about trust, which is the value of in person meetings. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that the pandemic broke was the in person board meeting. Um, and I I don't think you know, other than large public companies, I'm not sure that's coming back four times a year. Um, you know, I'm starting to insist that my board show up twice a year and then we do two on Zoom. Um, and maybe if my board was all in New York, it, it would be different. Um, but what, what do you think the right balance is of that? And, and how do you think that's going to shake out? Start with you, Jerry. 
Yeah, no, I, I think it's absolutely essential. You get them together in person. And if you can't do your all your board meetings in person, you should have a weekend or a couple of days where you all go away and get to know each other better. Because I, I think the group dynamic going wrong is, you know, you're always at this kind of like, you say something somebody doesn't agree with, they start a conversation, other people kind of join in. You, you need to control the group dynamic or at least have a good group dynamic. So you can either control it by talking to everybody beforehand, or you can believe in the group you have and the fact that they will forgive small missteps. They will come to each other, come to your aid versus somebody else's aid, right? You need to form a, a, a more level playing field. The investors probably already know each other. They probably already owe each other something. And you as the founder might not, right? So you, you, need, to, you need to get them to gel. And, and you can only do that in person. Any last thoughts on this topic? Yeah, I, I was thinking back to to the to actually the first board meeting that I had post pandemic, where maybe it was pre actually I don't remember, but it was a, a hybrid. One was in person and one was on Zoom, and I hadn't met the person who who was in person before. And we walked into the office, and this person looked around. I think I put this in the book. Said, "This place is a shithole. Spend my money and get yourself a better a better office." And I I didn't. I didn't want to because I didn't want to spend the money on frills and stuff. But similar to Tiger flying up to New York with me being able to see him in person, this enabled me to get a much better perspective on that person and like how they looked at things, what their hospital was. Um, and so I, I completely agree with Jerry. If I could do all of them in person all the time, I actually might insist on it in my next one. There's just and and the dinner beforehand where everybody gets a little totally a, a drinking a little bit and going out. It's it's just critical. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the thing that VCs figured out during the pandemic is, um, you know, VCs are limited basically um, on how many boards they sit on, right? It's how many investments they make, how many boards they sit on, particularly once you get into series, the series ABC, not necessarily pre-seed or seed. And I think one of the things they figured out in the pandemic is they could be on more boards if they didn't have to travel to board meetings. So it was better economics for them. And um, I think that's something that, that the whole ecosystem is going to have to figure out how to walk back slowly. Yeah, I don't think every board meeting has to be in person. No, but but, but you got you got to see each other a couple times a year. Definitely. Yeah. All right, I'd love to do um, a few quick topics uh, of of sort of point counterpoint, and either these weren't in the book or they weren't overly emphasized in the book. Um, so you know, I'd sort of love to hear for each one of these. You know, what is the most important thing that you can do as a founder or investor? Uh, to lower the temperature. Um, so the first one I'm going to talk about is the down round. Um, so down rounds happen. There are probably a lot of them happening right now. Um, they're super painful. They're super painful for everybody. Um, what's the most important thing, Liz, that founders can do um, around a down round? During the round? Well, sure. Yeah. I I think I, I have never done, I've never been part of a, a down round before. Um, I would think that if I were sitting in the founder's shoes that I would be feeling incredibly resentful and unhappy. And why? Because these board members, right? Your preferred has to sign off on a, a funding round. And so if I'm in a position where I'm, probably doing a down round and 
possibly an inside round at this point, right? Or an mm-hmm. aggressively capped note. Um, I I know that my preferred has signed off on the prior round. And so they have done so in a, in a fashion from, again, from a perspective of governance, because they're probably sitting on the board, like, hey, this is a good deal for this company at this point in time, based upon their prospects and the market and the growth trajectory. And now these same investors are probably saying to me, yo, we're going to give you some money. Of course, we're going to give you a lifeline. We're in this together, but we're going to do it at half the valuation or two thirds of the valuation. And that to me is like, well, shit, you said that this was okay. And we agreed and we chose this term sheet together. And now you're going to take advantage of it. That to me feels like it would build up a ton of resentment. And so I would do the best that I could to get through that round with limited emotion. I'd probably be speaking to my therapist two times a week and hitting, hitting my pillows with a bat. But at the end of it, I can imagine myself going in person to this investor flying or walking in New York City and, and saying, hey, this is how I felt about this thing. And, and can we have a conversation? And I don't know how that conversation would be received because I my experience has been most investors are a little uncomfortable with being uncomfortable, like, like human beings are. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, my suspicion is that's how I would try to manage that. Yeah. I mean, look, unfortunately, markets go up and markets go down. And, uh, you know, the universal view of one's prospects um, is, is allowed to change. But how about you, Jerry? What's something you would do to kind of lower the temperature on a, on a down round? Yeah, it's easier for me because I usually don't lead anything except the very first round if I lead that. So, you know, I'm not the one driving the lower valuation. I, I think, though, when I, I try to work with founders to say, like, what are our options, right? Like, let's go through all of the options because they can see that it's not necessarily that I don't believe in their company anymore, right? Because if I don't believe in their company anymore, I'm just not going to invest. It's that the market just generally has gone down. And, you know, there's nothing I can do about that. So, but there are options, right? Maybe we could have, we could raise a smaller round as a bridge. And here's the difference in your economics. You can help them work through the different ways they can do this. And, you know, in the end, I think it's, they have to understand that it's not about them. It's not a judgment on them. It just is what it is. And, you know, venture investors hate down rounds as much as anybody, right? It, it hurts them in you know, their investors' eyes. So I don't know. It's just something you, you just need to be able to talk it through. There's no great answer to that question. Right. No. So that's, right, let, oh, sorry, Matt. Yeah, go ahead. Actually, Jerry, can I, can I just touch on that point? I actually, thinking of all the founders I know who are experiencing a down round right now or an inside round, there's, I don't know that I've heard of a single investor saying to the founder in a way to, to maybe get them to feel a little bit better about it. Because of course, as a founder, how can I not take it personally? saying, I hate this as much as you do. That would neutralize so much emotion. Like here are the optics. Now I wish we had put this in the, in, the, in the book. Like here are the optics of what it looks like for my LPs in order to do something like this. And maybe you feel like I'm being a shark, but in actuality, here's the reality on the ground from, from my perspective. I wish that somebody would share that with me or another founder. All right, here I am sharing it with you, Liz. <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. Um, Look, I think the topic of empathy for VCs and empathy for founders is a pretty important one in building and maintaining that trusting relationship. And um, uh, and, and that's one in which the two ways, I think, are pretty different. Um, You know, VCs um, may or may not have more empathy for founders, but, but should be able to get there pretty easily. I think it's a lot harder for a founder to have empathy for a VC. But 
you know, founders do have to understand like, hey, VCs have have jobs too. They have accountability too. They have limited partners too. When they start a new fund, sometimes they don't make money for years. Um, and, uh, um, you know, there, I think there are a lot of um, founders that don't even really understand how VC economics work. Um, so it's one of the things we actually do at our company is we teach a class to the whole company on what VC firms look like, how they're structured, who their customers are, who they're accountable to, um, to try to bring some of that empathy in. That's really interesting. That's a good idea. Mm. All right. So here's the next question. Um, the so-so exit. It's not great. It's not terrible. It's fine. Um, or even the good exit where a bunch of investors are in the company at radically different cost bases. So you've got the pre-seed, you've got the A, and then you have like the D, you know, that came in at the, at the stratospheric valuation. Um, that's one of the most contentious situations that a board has to deal with. Um, how do you each think about um, again, sort of lowering the temperature and sort of getting through that. Uh, if you have a really a, a cantankerous late stage investor that's just not making their hurdle on a deal that's great for the early stage guys. So Jerry, we'll start with you on this as as an early stage guy. So I've never been in the boardroom for that that uh, discussion. I've talked to a lot of founders about that discussion um, because I'll stay involved with the founder after I'm off the board. <sighs> What do you do? I mean, I, I think in the end, it's it depends on why they're exiting. You know, if they're exiting because they want to exit, like, oh, this is a good deal and I can make some money. And, you know, I've been working for, you know, below market pay for eight years and now I can walk away with, a you know, several to many millions of dollars, which makes a huge difference in the founder's life. That's one thing. If it's, this is the best deal we're ever going to get, then it's something different. And, and I think in those situations, you have to approach it very differently. You know, if, if the late stage founder is simply being unreasonable, saying, you know, this may be the best deal you'll ever get, but I don't want to have to report this to my LPs, you know, that's something you need to just push through. If it's, this is a good deal and, you know, let's just all walk away and start over, that's harder. And, and I'm not sure there's a, you know, a good way other than just you need over time to just wear them down or get the other investors to convince them. It, it almost has to be, you know, an investor to investor conversation, I think. Hmm. What do you think, Liz? I mean, never been in that situation. Um, I think we're talking about the difference between the investor hat and the founder hat versus the governance hat of sitting on the board. The difference of what is the best thing for me, as opposed to what is the best thing for the company at this point in time. And I, I think it's critical to make that the obvious focal point. And if it turns out that the best thing for the company, for example, is to keep going, but the best thing for the founder is that they get some liquidity and they're tired, then I think that needs to become the conversation, mm. which is how can we affect the change over here while enabling the company to reach its full potential? Yeah, that's, I think that's a, that's a good point. Cause, um, that probably is a driver in that conversation quite a bit and doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be. There are ways of yeah. giving founders liquidity. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, one last question for each of you. Uh, we'll start with Jerry. You had a chart in the book um, and a section talking about fund returns. And, you know, basically the chart and some of the wording around it and the conventional wisdom is like fund returns are driven by one or two deals, right? right. You can have a portfolio of 50 companies and you got one unicorn in there and 
you know, there it is. Like that's the long bar on, on the right side of the bar chart. Um, and, you know, I think the, um, I, I think you said in the book and certainly conventional wisdom is like well, the VC didn't, didn't create that. Like they invested at the right time. They were probably supportive, but like that wasn't because of the VC. Um, the, the flip side is the rest of the chart, all those other little bars, right? Every single other investment you have, um, is, uh, you know, that sort of long tail of either, uh, companies that go out of business or companies that return one X or 1.2 X or 0.6 X, um, uh, you know, that's where all the friction in your life is, right? That's where all the, the friction yeah. is between the, the, uh, the founder and the investor. Um, and the question is sort of, you know, how do you, how do you reconcile that? Like if the fund driver is the one where you wrote the right check at the right time to the right person, right? You made the right bet and all the friction is in the part that doesn't produce a ton of value. Um, how do you just think about those things next to each other? Well, I, I think there's two things, right? You know, a lot of that venture investors will say, you can always tell the character of a venture investor by how they treat the companies that aren't performing, right? What do they do? And, and it's true that those are the companies that need your help the most. You know, the, you know when, the, when the trade desk, which is the big bar all the way on the right of that chart, uh, was doing really well, the founder, you know, didn't call me every week. You know, he didn't need to call me every week. I, and I didn't need to talk to him every week. I could see the company was doing well. He was doing a good job. And I was, you know, just go, just do it. Before that, though, and, and this is the, the, the key difference, there was a couple of years before it started doing really well, the company, where it wasn't doing well yet. And everybody around the table was saying, is this company going to succeed or not? And, and there's no way of knowing, right? So, at you know, back then... You know, Jeff and I would talk every week and he'd call me on a Friday and we'd have a little chat about whatever he, he was thinking about. And then he would go off and, and do his job. Um, but in, until that company took off, we didn't know if it was going to take off or not. So was it a good idea for me to spend the time talking to him every week? Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I enjoyed talking to him. I, I like Jeff, but it was also, I think, good for the company and good for my investment. All right. Last question for Liz. Um, I talked to a lot of founders and I talked to a lot of founders around boards and financing, same, same topics you all cover in the book. And, um, most founders are a little bit paranoid and freaked out about control and control issues. And eventually they have to make peace with them, right? You raise enough funds and, you know, unless you're Mark Zuckerberg and, and you've created two classes of shares and gotten everyone to agree to that, um, uh, you end up in a place where you don't have control, but in that zone where you either do have control, you're starting to lose control. Control is, is, is diminishing. Um, why do you, why do you think that the freak out occurs other than like natural human, you know, human nature around that? Um, you know, if you're not doing a good job as a CEO, shouldn't you be held accountable to that? I think those are two different things. So that again, we're, we're talking about per personal, personal desires, right? So if I sit on the board and I'm a co-founder and I'm the CEO, I am a founder and I am also theoretically a governor of the company. Um, and, and I also have a job. And so my, my, to your point, my natural instinct is to 
safeguard my job because why do I want to give up the power of the CEO, right? But as a founder, what I actually need to remember is what is the right thing for the company at this point in time. Um, the perspective that I and every co-founder with whom I've ever worked and I think spoken to have had is that we are the best stewards for the company and making decisions about the direction of the company, irrespective of who us as a founding team might put in the CEO chair. And sometimes those two decisions absolutely do get conflated. But I see so often when, when, when the preferred is in control of the company, the decisions are, they're just not, they're just not the right ones. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's how I think about it. And I think there is no more important term than safeguarding control through every single round. Like I nitpick the hell out of languages. You, you saw in the, the terms chapters, I think maybe yes. the longest chapter in the book. There's <laughs> a very long chapter, but a very important one. So yes. <laughs> um, Liz and Jerry, thank you so much for being here today. This is a pretty important book uh, for founders to read and for investors to read, uh, Founder versus Investor. And uh, happy to have a chance to talk to you about it. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Matt.